Hi, I'm Sky. And I'm Dom, and together we're part of the Escape the City community. Back in 2010, escaping your corporate career was a pretty fringe idea. But today, thanks to the advances in technologies and shifts in attitude, it's becoming increasingly mainstream. Escape is a movement of people who believe that life is too short to do work that doesn't matter to you, and that doing something different is possible. We're on a mission to help a million people to quit their corporate jobs and find work that matters to them and the world. And we wanted to share the incredible stories of those who have already made their career escapes with you. Welcome to The Escape Artists. There he is. Do you want to see the massive post of myself that I always try and hide on my Zoom? <laughs> oh, yeah. Look at that. I like that. Today's escape artist is Al Humphreys. From a role as a geography teacher to National Geographic Adventure of the Year, Al Humphreys has spent his career navigating the globe on wild and ambitious adventures. From adventures in your own backyard to cycling around the world, Al is a beautiful example of living differently and pursuing a life and career that matters to him. I can send you one if you want, Dom. <laughs> Please, yeah, I would, I'd like one in the corner of my room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Al, I am very excited to have you on the podcast. You were there from the beginning with Escape and spoke at our launch party. Do you want to start by just doing a little intro as to who you are? Who I am? Well, okay, I'll give you a simple intro. Uh, my name's uh, Alistair Humphreys. Uh, I'm an adventurer an author, a speaker, a bit of a podcaster, a video maker, all sorts of different things, a newsletter writer, um, all of which is just generally dabbling around at finding ways to live adventurously myself and tell those stories to lots of different people and somehow try and turn all of that that I love into my job. And how long have you been doing this? Oh, well, I haven't had a proper job since um, 2000 and eight, which was probably roughly-ish when I first met you um, at RGS, when you were sort of quite the adventuring side of Escape the City. <laughs> Is that when we first met then? I th- that's, that's the first time that I remember you. I might have met you lots of times before, but don't have any recollection <laughs> no, I of think it. That, I think that was it. Yeah, because right, right at the beginning, I wanted Escape to be much more adventure orientated. I guess it's interesting, though, to think about the things that interested you that got you started with Escape the Mm. City have ended up being very different to what you're at now. Was that 12 years on from when I first met you? You had an idea for being an adventurer. When you were like 14 years down the line, are you in a very different place to where you thought you would be? In many ways, no. I suppose in many ways I'm in the position that I idly dreamed of, which was, is there some way I could make my living out of just doing stuff that I really like, like going off on cool expeditions, telling stories about them. And when I first started my dream, and it was very much a dream and a hope rather than a plan, but was, I I wonder if I could earn a living from giving talks as my staple thing to pay the bills and spend time writing books because I really liked reading books and writing books. And I loved the idea of one day trying to be a writer. So Years down the line, I'm amazed and delighted that I pretty much do that. I go and do what I want to do, tell those stories and pay the bills from it. So I really like that. One thing that's definitely changed, though, is that I am now many years older than I was back when I was young, which sounds like a really silly thing to say, but has been really important for me to realise that in the last few years. Um, I spent probably 
10 years or so of my adventuring career, just living by the exact same rules that I'd made for myself when I started out. And gradually over time, my life and the things that I do started to really evolve away from the initial stuff in the same way that what you've done with Escape has really evolved. And it took me a long time to accept that change is not failing. It's not conceding defeat on your original thing. It's just a who you are now and what seems like the best thing to be doing now. So I suppose to give you a brief answer, yeah, it has pretty much worked out how I thought it would, even though I'm doing far smaller adventures than I was back when I started. When you were a kid, did you have any ideas of what you wanted to do when you grew up? No, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up, even until I'd graduated from university. Um, I think now of just how spectacularly unprepared I was by every single thing in my life to give me any idea at all about what grown-up life might be like. I had absolutely no clue whatsoever. I was lucky I went to a good school, got some good exam grades, went off to university purely because everyone else was going. I chose a university that was a four-year course rather than a three-year course because it sounded like good fun. It was ridiculous <laughs> and had absolutely no idea at all about what real life might be like. And that's one of the big reasons, actually, why when I finished university, I decided to go and try to cycle around the world because I had absolutely no idea what proper sensible thing I should do with my life. And therefore, rather than just getting on with a career that I hated, like you did, I thought I'll go and do something really exciting and fulfilling first. Maybe I'll get that out of my system. Maybe I'll learn a bit about life and then I'll begin after that. So in my final year at university, I really wanted to go and cycle right the way across the outback of Australia, straight through the middle of Australia, right in the middle. Um, I still haven't done that trip, but I also felt I should probably do something sensible about maybe getting a proper job. I thought maybe I'd be a teacher just because, well, I guess everyone in life knows about teachers. So it's, I think it often crosses the mind of people who don't have much idea of careers. So I made a deal with myself, which was, I really want to go cycle across Australia, but I'll also apply to Oxford and Cambridge for uh, the teaching degree. And if either of those two unis let me in, then I probably really should go and do it. So when I got into Oxford, I had real genuine mixed feelings of, oh man, now I can't go and ride my bike across Australia. I've got to go and train to be a teacher. Um, and I'm very glad I did that training because having that qualification was a massive, massive safety net, which helped me be yeah. brave enough and take the risks to go and try and make a unconventional career knowing that I always had the option to fall back on something made it infinitely easier and much less reckless and therefore worth taking a punt on. So you went through school you got accepted into doing the teaching training and then what did you do next? Once I qualified as a teacher I then thought now finally I can go on an adventure <laughs> so I decided to go on a big adventure and then after that I'd come and settle down and get on with a normal job so that was when I decided to cycle around the world and I spent four years cycling around the world, um, which was a brilliant and significant adventure as anyone's first big adventure is. Um, I came back from that. I faffed around for a while giving talks at primary schools to pay for life whilst I wrote my first book, which every publisher refused to publish. And it was a total disaster. And I thought my life was doomed. <laughs> and then I decided, right, now I should become a teacher. So I spent a year being a teacher, which I really enjoyed. But during that year, it was slightly gnawing in me the thought that 
I could now be teaching at this same school for the next 30 years. That is a completely mm. legitimate life path for me now. And I also thought I was about, I don't know how old I was, maybe say about 30 at that time. I thought I could be just as good a teacher when I'm 40 or maybe 50 or even 60. I don't have to do this right now. And what I should do right now is what I still haven't scratched the itch for, which is doing more expeditions. So I quit the teaching job. And then I, that was when I committed to see, right, can I actually try and make a living out of adventure? And I decided just to experiment with it for as long as I could keep my head afloat. And uh, luckily it worked out. And that's what I'm still doing now. Hmm. Oh, I, I hadn't realised that you actually went back to teaching. I thought you'd come back from your um, from the around the world and then you kind of just went straight into doing the talks and, and trying to make a, a career of it. Well, I did go straight into doing the talks and trying to write, but gnawing in the back of my mind whilst I was being carefree and adventurous was the thought of, this isn't really a proper job. And what someone like me who's got a nice degree is supposed to do is go and get a proper job. And I really should get a proper job. It's probably all my parents, uh, very kind and decent advice over all the years, banging away in my head that the way to a successful life was by working hard at a successful career and then getting your pension. So I think that that was what prompted me to give teaching a go. Mm. And what, so the definitions of success, like what was your definition of success then for like a successful life? When I was a teacher or when I quit being a teacher? When you were a teacher and why did that make you leave? Well, I really, really enjoyed being a teacher for a year and I was good at it. I was, I was a really good teacher, which I say not to boast, but because it wasn't that I was just running away from something I was rubbish at. I was really good at it. And I realised that the best way I could change things in that school was by becoming the head teacher. Mm. And in order to be the head teacher, I was just going to have to work really hard for 10 years and I'll be the head teacher for 20 years and that would be great. And then I'd retire the end. So that was a sort of successful conventional life. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, if you do that and you enjoy it, I'd say you have very much won at life. But there was a sort of a bit of restlessness still in me that the cycling hadn't cured and a I suppose some sort of ambition to do something a bit different and a bit more um, individual that perhaps gets hammered into you when you spend four years on your own on a bike in the middle of nowhere. I think settling to normal life becomes a bit of a curse after that. Mm. So, really mm, mm, no, no, so you almost feel like that journey, that the first big expedition you went on when around the world, that was almost a curse. It kind of unsettled you when you came back. Yeah, I, I, I went on a big adventure because I thought it'd be great fun and then I'd get on with life and that would be the end of it. But actually, it was great fun, but I very much see it as being a bit of a curse in my life, even to this day, in that ever since then, I've found it really hard to just accept normal life. Mm -hmm. And the things that most people deem to be sufficient in life just to lead a nice, normal, happy life don't do it for me. And therefore I've constantly been either restless in some ways or frustrated or ambitious or searching for something different. And yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time about, oh, should I go on a big adventure? And I, I try to say that it's a wonderful thing, which I definitely encourage, but two things. One, you won't solve the problems you have here by running away to the other side of the world, because at some point you're going to have to come back to them. 
that that wasn't my situation, but it was a lot of people's situation. Yeah. And the second thing is that running off on a big adventure is a great thing to do, but it's going to, from then on, very much change your perception of life back home. And mm. hopefully that is a really positive thing, but there's a risk of eternal restlessness as well, I fear. That's really interesting because I find the same thing is true with the work that we do with people in their career change. It's a very similar thing of once you know, you can't unknow. And it's almost impossible to operate once you <laughs> in the same paradigm, once you just know that something else is totally possible. And I think that is quite unsettling for people because taking the path less traveled is hard. And from a societal level, people will be envious, but they also find it difficult to reconcile. I'd be curious to know if how your relationships with other people have been, if people feel like them living a normal life is worse, or do they feel judged because you're rejecting the status quo? Or I'd be curious if that's something you've experienced. I tie myself up in knots quite often trying to clarify that all routes to life are equally valid. And just because you haven't ridden your bicycle for a long way doesn't mean you're a lesser person. And mm. um, and I say that not just to be polite, because I genuinely believe that. Mm. Um, but all, I, what I often notice is, for example, when I do talks, people come up to me at the end and they often say things like, oh, I... I went on a bike ride once. It was nothing like yours, of course, because it was only for a week or two weeks. Or or they say something like, oh, I've written a book, but it's nothing like you because you've written 10 books or something. And what I try and say to them is that it's exactly the same. I think if you have in yourself this feeling of adventure and you're curious about heading for the next horizon and you've ridden your bike for a week, then you know everything there is to know about spending years on a bike. So I hope I don't judge the world and I certainly shouldn't judge the world because I spend a lot of my time envying people with so-called normal lives who seem to be a lot more organized and content and settled in life than I am. So even in those examples you just gave, people project their own fears and insecurities onto people who are doing something slightly different. I suspect, though, that's just human nature, isn't it? Because yeah. I look at other adventurers and I think, oh, they're better than me because they've been to the South Pole and I haven't been to the South Pole or, oh, look, they've written 14 books and I've only written 13 or they've got more Amazon five-star reviews than I have. <laughs> so I must be a loser and a disaster. So yeah, I, I suspect this is just human nature, isn't it? This feeling of being restless is always prevalent with you. Do you feel like your family understand that? And how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I think people close to me understand that. I I deal with it. Well, I dealt with it for years by trying to charge off on other mad substitute <laughs> adventures around the world. But the danger of trying to get your adventure fix through chasing more adventures is that you need to go bigger, faster, further, higher, more dangerous, more epic, more exciting stories. Um, and that, I think, leads to either madness or disaster and certainly doesn't seem to have any sort of solution at the end of it. So I've changed tack really in recent years of trying to find the adventurous things that mean a lot to me and do them close to home and try and fit them around the bigger framework of real life. So um, I pay attention to making sure I spend enough time getting out running in the woods or swimming in rivers or jumping in the sea whenever I can and just trying to find these bits of wildness, which in many ways these days is my sort of 
substitute for adventure and just trying to squeeze them all around normal life. So not just trying to have either the extreme life or the total normal life, but just trying to live a more balanced, mixed life of including the various different things that feel important to me. For a lot of people who are kind of taking career changes or wanting to step out into the unknown, the thing that I've always feel that holds people back is the fear of, oh, what happens if I do this and it doesn't work out? How did you deal with fear? None of those things you mentioned are people saying, I'm scared if I don't do this, that Mm. I won't have this fantastic new life. I'm scared if I don't do this, that I'll get old and I'll not have done some sort of meaningful work. The sort of imagining of, yes, these things bad might happen, but if I go for it, and if it works, then what fantastic things might await, might there be out there? And I think um, the adventure world, expedition world is brilliant for that. If you're standing quite literally before some hazard, before some sort of obstacle, and there's lots of reasons why you don't want to carry on, but you know that if you get past this thing, then the rest of the exciting journey awaits. And um, by doing that literally on journeys many times, I suppose I've built it up into a habit so that by the time it came to taking risks which were creative or reputational rather than physical, they didn't really seem to matter too much now. So for example, now when I finish writing a book, one of the big worries is you write, you spend ages writing a book, you work really hard on it, you think it's brilliant, <laughs> hopefully you think it's brilliant, otherwise you shouldn't put it out there, but you think it's as good as you can do, you put it out into the world and the reality is that some people are going to hate that book and then a few people will bother to tell you that they hate that book. <laughs> and so that I think that's a reputational fear is something that has run through my life a lot since this became my job, but it feels quite trivial in some ways compared to the physical fears and physical hazards of journeys. So I suppose it puts it in perspective. And I mostly these days focus on, ah, if I put this book out, some people will really like it. And that's what excites me rather than the fear of the negative things. Mm. And how do you deal with those one-star reviews? Because you always make light on them on social. Do they impact you at all? Um, I think when you start to try and do anything public and... I'm by no means a famous person, so it's not like being fully public in the world, but I'm public in that I try to tell my story out on the internet and in talks, and therefore there's, I'm, I'm craving and needing an audience. And as soon as you do that, then, of course, you're opening yourself up to getting shot down a bit. Mm. And when it's interesting when you first write a book and the first reviews come in, you think, these are so important and they're so exciting when the first good reviews come in. You're like, look at this. This person says my book is brilliant, therefore it's brilliant. And that feels really lovely. <laughs> At some point, though, the first terrible review is going to come in when someone says, this book is absolutely terrible, it's rubbish. And I think if you're, if you're willing to believe all the good reviews, then you should also believe the bad ones. And that can then be quite painful and hurtful. Occasionally, when I really should be doing better things with my life, I go onto Amazon and I read my own reviews. And I actually really pay almost no attention to the five-star reviews. Oh, this is a great book. Isn't Al a nice guy? Yeah, whatever. Shut up. Um, <laughs> but it's the, it's the, um, the one-star reviews and the two-star reviews. I could pretty much quote them all wow. word for word. They sort of fascinate me. Yeah. And they can be quite hurtful. Um, that The Doorstep Mile book I did, someone put a review out saying, I think this is the worst book he's ever read in his life. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's um, really a claim. Which is quite painful, in, potentially. So I just try to make light of these things now by retweeting bad reviews. I read them out on video and I put them online and I find them quite amusing. When when people send me really critical things about my email newsletters, like sometimes be, I don't know why oh. people do it. They just reply with just foul anger <laughs> rather than just pressing the unsubscribe button at the bottom. And these days I actually really enjoy those. I enjoy them. I share them. I put them up at the top of the newsletters and I just, it's a sort of Aikido move, isn't it? You take their fat force and twist it around and put it back at them. But you certainly have to accept if you're going to try and do anything other than just a fully conventional thing that people are going to criticize you. And then you have a choice as to whether that matters to you or not. It's a real superpower to be able to do that because it's hard, you know, at the end to keep that perspective is is really is such a skill. For me, it's very much a chosen superpower and a, a learned skill. Mm. I mean, w- without getting too much into the pop psychiatry of this on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> one of the main reasons I suspect that I went to cycle around the world was that so people would say that I was amazing mm. um, after a lifetime of feeling unnoticed and ordinary mm. and so i'm i am very thin skinned now if someone puts a nasty tweet out about me or a nasty email that stays with me in my head for far far longer than it should do it really bothers me and therefore i don't want to feel like that i know it's stupid and therefore i just consciously have chosen to do the things i was saying just now and over time it works you know we, mm. we you you become your habits, don't you? And I actually now quite look forward to getting a one-star review just so that I can read it out on Instagram. Uh, and someone actually on Instagram last week, they said, are you worried that people are going to start deliberately leaving you bad reviews just so they'll get read out on Instagram? That's true. <laughs> Al, you are like the a source of a lot of inspiration for a lot of people who are unsettled and want to go off and do adventures and but who do you get inspired by i don't really know anymore um i spent a lot of years reading all the sorts of books by people like Brene brown and listening to endless ted talks which i found very personally helpful but also professionally useful in terms of trying to work out how to get a message across simply and clearly Mm. seth godin for example in terms of the practicalities of Things not not really inspiration, but just the practicalities of telling stories well. But in recent years, I really have stopped doing that. I guess a lot of it came when lockdown came, and suddenly I couldn't really bear to be looking at the internet with everyone off there doing exciting stuff, whilst I wasn't. So since lockdown, I've unfollowed everyone on social media. I've stopped really engaging with anything like that, and I. I just read books these days. So I don't know if that's a permanent phase or just a temporary one in these strange times we're living in, as we say. But I don't really have an answer to that now, which is, I hadn't thought of it until you ask it, but it's interesting because for 10, 15 years, I've spent huge amounts of time and effort studying and reading and listening to and watching the sort of people that I suspect you thought I was going to mention. I I actually had no idea who you would mention. Ben Saunders. Ben Saunders, the... um, the Dutch, famous Dutch actor. No, your friend, 
I have a very good friend called Ben Saunders who's a polar explorer but uh, much to his annoyance he comes second on Google searches to another Ben Saunders uh, uh, who does I always he? like to flag up but yeah so Ben Ben Saunders is an interesting comparison I suppose with me in that Ben like me has spent many years going off on big expeditions to the ends of the earth and earning a living from doing talks about it and from working with brands pretty much as I've done. The big change has been that Ben's very good at doing one thing well. So he has his one story, go off, do big expedition, tell inspirational stories about it. Whereas I seem to be much more of a perpetual dabbler. So once I get half good at one thing, I then want to move on to the next thing. And actually, Ben, I learned so much from Ben over the years. And one thing he would always tell me off for he's like you've got to stop trying to do so many things just do one thing when I was trying to write blogs and learn how to make films and all sorts just do one thing which is very very good advice but I think Mm. you can also put another argument up that I've quite enjoyed allowing the things to evolve and change direction and change path and the way I my storytelling things have changed a lot the sort of adventures I've done have changed a lot um so yeah there's there are different ways of getting to a good end point aren't there yeah, no, I'm, I'm, um, I am one, definitely one of those dabblers. I always have David Hyatt in my ear, ear the whole time doing one thing well, do one thing well. Have you read the book, The One Thing? <laughs> no, maybe I should. <laughs> okay, it's a really good book. And I, I, actually, I actually asked myself a question from it today, which I have on my, my desk is covered in so many post-it notes of things I should do. But I wrote this one post-it note thing today, which comes from The One Thing book, which is, what is the one thing for each aspect of my life? So I think perhaps what you're getting muddled up with is that, there, of course, there are lots of different things in your working life. The the job board, the podcast, whatever, I don't know, HR, all the, whatever these different things are. But the question to ask yourself is, within each of those aspects, what is the one thing that you really should focus on, which would have the maximum benefits? Mm. So, yeah, that's what I've been trying to uh, going to try and ask myself over the coming days to try and pin down my post-pandemic direction and what is your post-pandemic direction well i don't know because i haven't answered my <laughs> post-it note yet <laughs> the pandemic has been well many things of which everyone has spoken about a lot. But one thing I saw it as for me was to look at all the different things that I do in life and that I, in my working life, this is, and many of them I've done for well over a decade, even though some of them I don't particularly enjoy anymore. So, and I've been asking myself, all these things that I do, do I want them to start again when life begins again Mm. post pandemic? So for example, I'm on your podcast today because I'm very delighted and honoured to be on it because I've enjoyed what you've done for so long. But one of my resolutions was, I really hate going on other people's <laughs> podcasts because they they ask me the same questions and it wastes my time. And what I should be doing is just writing my book. Mm. So I just said, right, I'm not going to do podcast things anymore. So I've been really trying to cut out yeah. lots and lots of things in my life. And what I've dreamed of for many years, I would love to be a writer. And by that, in my definition, I mean someone who earns his living from writing. Mm. And I've written a lot of books now, but they they don't sell very many. They're quite niche. And so I can't live just from writing. But I thought 
I'm going to really knuckle down to just try and become a writer. And in order to do that, I need to cut out quite a lot of other things. Right. So I would really like if we talked in five or 10 years, I would love to be just earning my living purely from writing, but I don't know whether or not I'll manage that. And writing mm. about adventure or? Other stuff, I think. I think over time now, my, my interest in the sort of Ranulph Fiennes school of adventure, which for so many years was my guiding light of, oh, go and have a miserable time in the Arctic, soar off your fingers. This will be, this is brilliant fun. Um, I've, I think I've moved away from that life now onto being much more interested in in nature and trying to fit the sort of smallest of nature and small little adventures in around normal life. That excites me more these days. But yeah, I'm quite into trees and nature and climate and the environment. But what I'm aware of is that without me really realising, I've built up over the past 12 years or so quite a lot of knowledge capital i've over the years i've become really quite an expert at quite a random thing but quite expert and in order to change too drastically away from that risks me going right back to being a beginner again and i think it would be a bit foolish to give up all of that knowledge and also all the, the networks and contacts and connections with it so i'm essentially trying to work out how to pivot away from soaring off my fingers at the north pole to a uh, <laughs> writing about butterflies in some sort of way that uh, is viable. So that, and this kind of brings me on, I wanted to know about like the dark side or like the harder things in the last 15 years. Ultimately, you've lived your dream. You've gone off on these adventures, which you've loved to do, and then you can come back and, and fill your creativity with telling the story about them. You've really learned your craft so well, and you really are, in speaking, you've, you've, you've nailed it. You've become such a great speaker. And you're always the best speaker that we've ever had. And I'm not saying that just because you're on the podcast, but I, I genuinely... No, you're very kind. Gen- and you're always one of the worst paying uh, speaking agencies. So. <laughs> That's for sure. But I'm, I, I'm intrigued about the darker sides of it. What have you struggled with? I've struggled with trying to make a living out of my life. And by that, I mean that essentially I go off and do something that I want to do in my life. And then I write about my life or I talk about my life and that pays the bills. And a struggle with that is that at many times I felt that my identity and my self-worth is entirely tied up in how many books I'm selling, how many, how much I'm getting paid for a talk, how many Twitter followers I have, that sort of thing becomes very much linked, not just to my business, but to me, myself. Um, I've also been really conscious that um, I am only as interesting as my next interesting story. And therefore, I must continually keep having something exciting to be doing in the future. Mm. The question, which is a very normal one to get asked in podcasts, interviews, talks is, ah, what next? And that is the question, which is a very sensible question, but that's the question that brings me closest to swearing and screaming and violence, <laughs> mostly just because it, of what, it, what that reflects inside myself, which mm. is, crikey, is all this I've done not enough? Am I not enough as I am? Must I always be trying to do something new and exciting? So I found that aspect hard. I found it hard to switch off from work as in I partly because I love it but I would very happily spend every minute of every day in some ways 
working. And another thing I find hard is the difference between is what I'm doing now actually working or is it just fluffing and faffing around? Mm. As in, is this podcast interview I'm doing with you now, is this actually work? Is this going to reach an audience that is useful and worthwhile for my work? Or is it just having a nice chat with two nice people who say nice things about me and they make me feel good about myself? <laughs> Should I actually be getting on with writing a book? So that sort of separation <laughs> of work and fluff is difficult sometimes when you're what? dabbling around the edges of because for, for me work in many ways is let's put pictures on instagram of me riding my bicycle that is my work but it's also generally regarded as what people most people would do for fun well mm. i think it's work because my i know my brother will listen to this and my brother loves you and i think if as a result of this he'll buy a couple of books so <laughs> okay that, you're at least a few book sales so there. i think that'll be worth <laughs> probably 20 quid <laughs> okay, well, that's worth four hours of my time, <laughs> and I value I value my my time at uh, less than twenty pounds an hour. So um, I don't know how you value yours. <laughs> Probably more than twenty pounds an hour. Yeah. All right, maybe we'll get some more books out. We'll, we'll we'll plug your books beginning, end, and in the middle, and we'll get some more brilliant books out for you, so you can classify this as well. Okay. <laughs> going on these big adventures and then now you're trying to to do something which is slightly different which is living adventurously and trying to incorporate the smaller adventures into your life and obviously you know the micro adventures and and that's such a I mean I just love I personally love the concept um that anybody can live a bit more adventurously without having to this to be this binary um this or that. Um, and I'm curious, you've, you've spoken to a lot of people about it. You've written a book about microadventures. You've got also, you've got microadventure calendars. So you give people inspiration about the different things they could do. You've got the t-shirts, which Dom's wearing at the moment. How have you seen people doing this really well? What have been some of the stories of people having microadventures or small adventures or living adventurously that have inspired you? I think this is the flip side of getting the angry emails is getting emails from people who are writing to say thank you and actually I think it's a good thing for all of us to do actually is to think of the book you've read or the person who's had an impact on you and take literally one minute to bother to write and say thank you because it happens to me sometimes and it makes such a difference but people say I've been meaning to send this email for years but and their stories then are usually very mundane in that they say, oh, my life was a bit boring. And then I started doing micro adventures. And through that, I've connected with my husband or my wife and I've got my kids out to the outdoors and I'm much happier for that. Keep up the good work. Boom. And those sort of small, not very spectacular stories have really made the micro adventure thing feel incredibly worthwhile. That's just amazed me since I started doing those quite a number of years ago, just how much that is. The idea has spread and become self-fulfilling. And if you type micro adventure into google you see so many things of which have got nothing to do with me which i think mm. is testimony that has worked quite well when it sort of grows beyond just being me banging on about trying to get people to go sleep on a hill <laughs> uh, out of all the things that you've done in the last 15 years that the micro adventure movement let's call it the, a movement the books the videos so you've had some videos that have had huge success and, ma and huge uh viewing figures what's the thing that you're most proud of? The micro adventures in general, I think has been the most useful thing I've done from a 
a work point of view. I mean, I think it's it's great to tell stories of big adventures and get people enthusiastic about traveling the world and to help a few people to do that. But that's pretty pointless on a grand scale of things, really. It's fun, but it's a bit pointless. But trying to, the, the micro adventures thing of getting lots of ordinary people to start to look at themselves as adventurers in their own right and that to think that they're, trip off to the woods this weekend with their kids is adventurous in its own way and therefore a valid thing to be doing that you know and valid adventurous thing um has that's been really rewarding and satisfying just to see how the the micro adventures thing has spread and if i ever get a tiny obituary in some local newspaper i think they'll write about micro adventures i think i think they will too because it's the even if you're talking about recognition um it was when the micro adventure stuff really kicked off in 2014 was it that that was when my book came out national geographic made you adventure of the year 2012 that must have been a nice recognition yeah that was really incredible um yeah so national geographic they choose their adventurers of the year who had always generally been just sort of some sort of crazy man or woman who'd just done something mad and epic. And I loved that sort of thing conceptually. That was what I was aspiring to, really. But realistically, I wasn't going to become a National Geographic Adventure of the Year through any of my actual expeditions. So then I spent a year just blogging about monthly micro-adventures around the UK. So I committed to not going on a big expedition and instead to do small little local stuff. And I was so torn at the time. I was just about earning a living from adventure and I was really worried that stopping the big macho stuff to start pratting around swimming in rivers would be just <laughs> reputational suicide and that I'd never get booked for talks ever again and that I was doomed but I thought it felt that I was onto something so I wrote about it for a blog for a year and then yeah near the end of the year I got an email from National Geographic saying well you've been shortlisted for adventure of the year please can we interview you and I was probably one of only well, I, I'm not actually. I'm not sure I can ever remember a work-related email that's you know that sort of jump out of your seat, wah, excitement type thing. I think in many ways that was the most important thing that happened to me in terms of my work. That was a validation from an external source. From then on, that really helped me so much. Start to get talks and articles, and gradually make it more of a, a reliable way of life. And so, where are you now with the micro adventure? Have you kind of just let it take on its own form? Yeah, so I, I, I started Microventures ages ago. So it's, in 2010, I walked a lap of the M25. It was and then wow. all, of, all through 2011, I was writing my annual blog about Microventures. So that was 10 years ago. That's when I was trying to learn how to make little films as well. And then uh, eventually the book came out in 2014. And then I really went hard on it for a couple of years, trying to have a hashtag microadventure and set up Facebook groups and try and get loads of other people participating in microadventures. And it was fantastic. But also deep down, I was slightly thinking, yeah, I'd be quite glad when all this goes away that I can get back to being a proper <laughs> adventurer, going off to do big, tough stuff again. So, and But it never did. It never went away. It kept just pe interviews and articles. That was always what people were interested in. And I really noticed also when I do talks that you can tell so instantly from an audience what they care about. And what I've learned over time is that audiences care about me cycling around the world. They care about me walking around the M25 and they care about me playing the violin very badly in Spain. They don't give a monkey's about anything else that I've done. So micro adventures I accept are here to stay. And I love it now. I, I now see it as being far more important than the big tough guy stuff. And I've come, to, I, and I'm, 
accept and also now quite happy that people think of me, oh, there's Al Humphreys, the micro-adventure guy, not there's Al Humphreys, the tough guy explorer, which is what I wanted to be for so long. It's so relatable, isn't it? There's something that I can do as a consultant at PwC and live more of a live more adventurously i can just go and sleep on a hill for a night and i'll feel like our humphreys i think that's the thing about this adventure stuff in general is for your life it doesn't have to be quit your job and ride a bike for four years or be an accountant at pwc and massively bored for your whole life (laughs) it doesn't have to be either of those ridiculous extremes there's a a much more rounded balanced way isn't there Mm. things that people care about the cycling around the world for four years the micro adventures and the busking through spain is all it's kind of all skills that most people really want to be able to attain so you've got something that you know cycling around the world for four years it's it's there's so much resilience that has to happen to be able to make that happen and and stamina and kind of perseverance through challenge and micro adventures of like being the kind of person who's kind of a get up and go and just, you know, small things, making things happen without having to have some big um, thing. And then, you know, what your adventure going to Spain and busking through Spain and making your way, putting yourself out there and, you know, for, for judgment, but also to make enough money to eat, <laughs> to eat and to, to survive in Spain. It's, it strikes me that, as Dom said, it's so relatable because these are all skills that people want to have, but also maybe feel closer to being possible than maybe some of the bigger adventures. I feel like they all say something more about you as a person and like your personality and some of the skills that you've been able to build than something that just feels like, oh, it's really extreme in the same way, which is interesting. Yeah, I think so. It certainly doesn't involve, say, the technical expertise you might need to go on a polar expedition or the huge amounts of cash you might need to go and climb Mount Everest. I mean, biking for four years is a bit extreme on a (laughs) diet of banana sandwich. but, um, But yeah, I think going on a big bike trip within the realms of your life or going to walk around your local town is quite achievable or the Spain thing links to what we talked about earlier really really which is I I'm terrible at the violin I mean I'm not being humble here I'm genuinely terrible and I'm also I don't like performing really I karaoke or singing or dancing I hate all of that I'm rubbish at it and I'm embarrassed by it. So to stand up in a town square in Spain with a violin and play it really badly was just mortifying. So that was really a, an adventure all about vulnerability. Mm. And again, it becomes a bit of a learned superpower of you feel so awkward. You look like a total idiot. And yet if you just acknowledge that to the world, you say, here I am, world. I'm absolutely useless, but I'm doing my best. Then it, it becomes a, a superpower, really. Um, mm. And that in many ways was one of the most exciting adventures I've ever done in my life. But all I was doing was a fairly small walk, like a bunch of retired people might do on a rambling holiday. But it really did feel like an adventure. (laughs) Well, it was an adventure because you were doing it with no money in your pocket. Yeah, exactly. There's no money, only my violin. That's what made it an adventure, not the hiking. But I think that's then interesting in that it changes the definition of adventure from being walking from here to there in a tough and difficult way to standing up in a plaza and playing the violin. And, And if that then is defined as an adventure, then I think that really broadens it up 
to apply to all of us with lots of things we're doing in our home lives, but also our work lives as well. How can we do that in a more adventurous way? Mm. Yeah, no, and that's why your book, The Doorstep Mile, is um, is so good. And I, yeah, the, 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 I always felt that when I started Escape that I yearned for adventure and that was my version of adventure, of really putting myself out there and trying to make it work and wasn't sure how it was going to go and whether or not it was going to last a couple of months or if it was going to be something else. And it definitely has... <laughs> It definitely has been adventure. So that's my my form of, of adventure. That's, you've been on an amazing adventure from the tiny little start you had, and then the building the shed in someone's garden phase, <laughs> and then sun, and then the you've been on a massive journey, hasn't you? It's been amazing. A huge roller coaster, and like it, it continues to be a roller coaster. Maybe I'll do my own episode in season ten um, when, when I've made it. <laughs> And my version of well, I, I I interviewed myself for my own podcast, which is the ultimate narcissism. So, yeah, mm. I had all these questions that I asked all my guests, and I thought I should end the series by asking myself them, which is quite interesting. But I'm not sure if anyone listened. I mean, that's full on narcissism. Me asking the questions and answering them. I don't know if it's narcissism. I think it's a really deep self knowledge and self reflection thing because most people don't take the time to ask themselves those questions. We're so busy living and not asking ourselves why we do things that we do. My final question now is if you only had one year to live from now, how would you spend it? Well, hopefully I have spent the last 15 years or whatever trying to get into a position whereby I live each year in that manner, in that I'm doing things that excite me and interest me and feel worthwhile. Uh, I spend enough time with people that I care about rather than just at work and that I'm doing something useful that I really enjoy. So hopefully I would just crack on as I am. I definitely wouldn't do any more podcast interviews though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you, maybe we've got your final podcast interview. This will be mm. the final one. Wow. You better make it good. So Al, thank you so much. I mean, you've been a, a real inspiration for me on my journey through doing Escape. And I remember when I was leaving my job, I would... Uh, listen to your stuff and re read your blog. And I actually don't really, I genuinely don't listen to that many podcasts or read that many books. I actually hardly read any books, but I listen to your podcast and I read about four of your books, not all 13, but I've read particularly the, the world around the world, the one around the world is still my favorite book. And I'm, I am not saying that because you're on the podcast, but I, um, I mean it like it's, it's so good. And I've, I loved it. And I know that you've been such a, source of inspiration for so many people and um, so I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing because you really have inspired so many people and you've done it through your talks you've done it through so many of your in your um constantly evolving how you tell your story you've got so good at doing that in many different disciplines so I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing and thank you for sharing your story with us on escape oh thank you Tom that's really lovely I've enjoyed journeying along with you over many many years so yeah Here's to the next 10. Thank you. Al was the original escape hero to me in 2009. I remember emailing him asking him to talk at our launch party and we were so excited when he said yes. He's a great role model. He's put so much effort into being good at his craft, which is ultimately storytelling. And he's just such a really authentic guy and I hope that came across. So Sky, any opportunities in our top 10 email that stand out for you this week? 
This week, there is a really interesting opportunity to become a senior business advisor for ReLondon, who work to improve waste and resource management in London and accelerate the transition to being a low carbon circular city. And as a senior business advisor, you would deliver advice to businesses, assessing the merits of different business models, as well as designing and testing new propositions to support the circular business economy. So it's a really great opportunity to have an impact and really interesting to work with businesses. So super cool. Check that out. And all of the other interesting opportunities that we couldn't mention today on escapethecity.org. Well, Sky, we've reached the end of the pilot season. How do you think it's gone? I have loved hearing all the stories that we've heard so far this year. Um, Such different backgrounds, really different experiences and paths, and yet all of them really dedicated to following their own path and being on their own journey. And selfishly, (laughs) I've really loved talking with each of them and it's been so inspiring to me and it's been so great to hear stories from people in the community who have gotten touched, who have enjoyed hearing the stories and have felt inspired as well. So it's been really rewarding. I also know that we're just scratching the surface. There are so many incredible stories out there that we haven't yet had time to tell and really hoping that we can do this again and get more stories told. Yeah, I agree. I'm so glad we've done it. If you've enjoyed hearing the stories from this season or if you have any ideas for guests or feedback or just to say hi, email us on support at escapethecity.org. We plan to record another season later in the year and bring you more stories of people doing things differently and pursuing work that matters to them. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.